people of Kenya and indeed to all of us as Africans. Tosa speaking at the funeral for former Kenyan President Mwai Kibaki. Details coming up. Also, relatives of kidnapped victims in Nigeria express concern about a bill that outlaws ransom payments to bandits. These stories and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story. Kenya held a state funeral today for its third president, Mwai Kibaki, who died last week at the age of 90. Officials are hailing Kibaki for transforming Kenya's economy and education. Mohamed Yasuf reports from Nairobi. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta led other African leaders and tens of thousands of Kenyans in paying last respects to former President Mwai Kibaki. We are here not only to mourn an incalculable loss, but also to celebrate a magnificent life. We celebrate a man of faith, a man of family, a man of honor, and a man who always put Kenya and Kenyans first. Kibaki died last week at the age of 90. He led the East African nation between 2002 and 2013 when he stepped down after two terms. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is one of the leaders who attended the prayer service at Nyayo Stadium in Nairobi. We remember President Kibaki for the leadership that he demonstrated, not only to Kenya, but also to the African continent. We remember him for his commitment to the people of Kenya and indeed to all of us as Africans. 60-year-old Jacinta Njeri is one of thousands who were on hand to remember the late president. She says there is no leader like him. We remember him for many things, she says. He will sponsor our children's education. He also developed our country. There is no better economist in Kenya than the president. Kenya's third president is praised for transforming the country's infrastructure, agriculture and education sector. The third Kenyan president, Kibaki's election in 2002, brought an end to four decades of one-party rule. Political commentator Michael Agwanda told VIA Kibaki transformed the country. Literally, his works are the life um, of uh, Kenyan governance since independence in 1963. Now, that is somebody that uh, the country was expecting to come in with a lot of reforms in uh, governance, uh, in, 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 uh, in economics. And as a result, uh, he did not disappoint people in his first term uh, as the president. He, he, he stamped out uh, corruption. It was not as much. He borrowed very little from uh, the foreign and the local uh, borrowers. He used money and people started seeing uh, the, uh, the value for money. This African nation recorded its highest economic growth at 7% per year during his tenure in office. Many Kenyans also remember Kibaki for his role in 2007 and 2008 political violence. His disputed election win against opposition leader Raila Odinga, who accused him of rigging the vote, led to street protests and intercommunal clashes that claimed the lives of more than 1,100 people. At the funeral, Odinga spoke about meeting with Kibaki after the violence and how the two agreed to work together. The truce led to the formation of a unity government, with Odinga becoming prime minister. Kibaki will be buried on Saturday at his rural home in central Kenya. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Press Freedom Groups, Reporters Without Borders, RSF, 
has put French media websites back online in Mali after the military government there banned two major French broadcasts this week. Annie Reisenberg reports from Bamako. Reporters Without Borders put the France 24 and Radio France International websites back online in Mali Thursday, creating mirrors of the sites that can be accessed in Mali and are updated in real time. Using a virtual private network had previously been the only way to access those websites in Mali, since the military government blocked them and took their corresponding TV and radio stations off the air March 17th. Arnold Froger, head of the RSF Africa desk, says that the action is part of the organization's work toward media freedom. He says RSF has been getting banned media websites back online since 2015, so far having put 47 websites back online in 24 countries, most recently in Russia. It's basically restoring your right to access to uh, information that has been uh, wrongfully denied uh, by this uh, censorship. On Wednesday, France Media Monde, the parent company of RFI and France 24, said it was notified of the decision of Mali's High Communication Authority to definitively ban the two stations in the country. The High Communication Authority is the communication regulatory body in Mali, whose website says its primary mission is to protect freedom of information and communication and freedom of the press. RFI and France 24 were taken off the air in March after RFI reported on alleged human rights abuses by Mali's army around the town of Diabali. Mali's government said the report contained false allegations aimed at destabilizing the government. In late March, after the French broadcast ban, Human Rights Watch and several other media outlets reported on a Mali army operation in the town of Mora, in which witnesses said 300 civilians were killed. Tensions have been running high between the Malian and French governments. This month, France accused Russian mercenaries of staging a mass grave in Gosi, Mali, in order to blame it on French forces who had recently handed over a military base in Gosi to the Malian army. Mali's government then accused France of spying, but did not mention or refute the claim that Russian mercenaries are working with the Malian army. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. The UN Refugee Agency says more than 3,000 refugees, asylum seekers and migrants died or disappeared on dangerous sea journeys to Europe last year. That's more than double the number who died or disappeared in 2019. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Fresh data show refugees and migrant deaths are increasing at an alarming rate. More than 3,000 people died or went missing in the Mediterranean or Atlantic last year on attempts to reach Europe. In comparison, 1,439 people died or went missing on those routes in 2019 and about 1,800 in 2020. Since the beginning of this year, the UN Refugee Agency reports an additional 553 people also have died or gone missing while attempting to reach Europe. UNHCR spokeswoman Shabia Mantu says desperation is driving more people to make perilous sea journeys in search of protection and a better life. Most of the sea crossings took place in packed, unseaworthy inflatable boats many of which capsized or were deflated, leading to the loss of life. The sea journey from the West Africa coastal states, such as Senegal and Mauritania, to the Canary Islands is long and perilous and can take up to 10 days. 
Many boats drifted off course or otherwise went missing without trace in these waters. Mantu says land routes also are highly dangerous. She says even more people have died on journeys through the Sahara Desert and remote border areas than on the sea. She says many people are subjected to horrific forms of abuse at the hands of smugglers or traffickers armed in criminal gangs and sometimes by law enforcement authorities. Among the litany of abuses reported by people traveling these routes are extrajudicial killings, unlawful and arbitrary detention, sexual and gender-based violence, forced labor, slavery, forced marriage, and other gross human rights violations. UNHCR warns that continued political instability and conflicts, deteriorating socioeconomic conditions, as well as the impact of climate change may increase displacement and dangerous onward movements. The UNHCR is calling for support to provide credible alternatives to the dangerous journeys. It is appealing for $163.5 million to provide increased humanitarian assistance and solutions for people who need international protection. The appeal covers some 25 countries in four regions. All are connected by the same land and sea routes used by migrants, asylum seekers and refugees. The UNHCR aims to provide essential services and protection to people on the move or stranded en route, intercepted at sea or held in detention. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Relatives of kidnapped victims in Nigeria have expressed concerns about a bill that would outlaw ransom payments for someone's release. The bill, which passed the Nigerian Senate Wednesday, imposes a minimum of 15 years in prison to anyone who pays a ransom. The proposal comes as Nigeria suffers a series of mass abductions carried out mainly for ransom. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Paul Michelia was alerted by phone of an attack that took place at a forestry college in Kaduna State the morning of March 12, 2021. His caller told him that his son, who is a student of the school, and 38 others had been taken away by armed gangs. He says it was a difficult moment for his family. The experience we have passed through with my wife is still affecting us psychologically. Till today, at 4 a.m., when the, the day is breaking, I now remembered the experience. I wake up from sleep and I won't go back to sleep. Michelle's family and parents of other kidnapped students say that after weeks of negotiations, they paid about $100,000 to secure the release of their children. They negotiated despite warnings from Nigerian authorities not to give in to pressure from the kidnappers. This week, the Nigerian Senate approved an amendment to the country's terrorism law that would outlaw ransom payments. Anyone who paid ransom could face up to 15 years in prison. The bill also proposes the death penalty for convicted kidnappers when the abduction leads to loss of life and life imprisonment in other instances. Authorities warned that paying ransom was only making kidnappers emboldened and hope the bill will address the spate of kidnappings. But Michelia disagrees. To me, it's out of context because so I don't think it's going to solve any problem. Even if you jail somebody today, you jail somebody tomorrow, and this kidnapping continue, people will still go out of their way to pay. 
The bill still needs approval from the lower house of parliament and President Muhammadu Buhari before it becomes law. Authorities in northern Nigeria are struggling to contain armed gangs who are on a kidnapping spree and have earned huge sums of money through ransom payments. Human rights lawyer Martin Obono says the government is shifting responsibility by criminalizing ransom payment by citizens. This is government actually trying to shift the post. So if you're now saying that you want to criminalize my ransom payment, who is now going to criminalize government's failure to provide or guarantee my own security? According to a report by Lagos-based risk analysis firm, SB Morgan Intelligence, at least $18.3 million in ransom was paid to Nigerian kidnappers between 2011 and 2020. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Cameroon's military says civilians this week buried scores of separatist fighters in mass graves after troops launched raids on rebel strongholds in the country's western regions. A separatist spokesman accused Cameroon's military of executing their captured fighters, which the military denies. Moki Edward Kinzekka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. About 20 people dig and arrange eight corpses in a grave in Guzang, a village in Cameroon's English-speaking northwest region. In a video widely shared on the social media platforms WhatsApp and Facebook, the people say seven of the corpses... They are burying in a three-meter-wide, one-meter-deep grave, are identified as separatist fighters, and one as a civilian. Cameroon's military said Thursday that civilians buried separatist fighters killed by government troops in Guzang. The military said it conducted raids in the past week in northwestern towns and villages, including Guzang, Batibo, Wum, Ndu, Kumbo, and Bafut were separatists were attacking and harassing civilians. Cameroonian authorities blame Anglophone separatists for kidnapping for ransom, disrupting traffic, and attacks on public buildings controlled by the central government in Yaoundé. The military said more than 40 fighters, including three self-proclaimed separatist generals, were killed in the raids. Capo Daniel is Deputy Defense Chief of the Amazonian Defense Forces, one of the separatist groups in Cameroon's English-speaking northwest and southwest regions. He acknowledges that fighters were killed, but does not say how many. Daniel says Cameroonian government troops committed gross human rights violations against fighters, including the troops killed in Guzang. Six of those fighters in Guzang, including one civilian, were all captured alive. Their hands were tied behind their backs before they were executed. In a second location still in Guzang, four soldiers were captured, their hands tied behind their backs. Two of them later died of uh, bullet wounds. Another one was executed in Gozang Market Square. The Cameroon military attack against our freedom fighters in Gozang is a war crime and it's a crime against humanity. Daniel said fighters killed several government troops. He said separatists will not surrender in their fight to gain what he calls the freedom of the English-speaking minority 
from the French-speaking majority Cameroon. Cameroon's military denies its troops were killed and that it committed crimes against fighters. The military says troops responded to protect civilians after fighters attacked civilians, shooting indiscriminately in the air. Deben Chofo, governor of Cameroon's English-speaking northwest region, where government troops attacked separatists this week, says the Cameroon's government will forgive fighters who drop their weapons and leave the bush where separatists hide to commit atrocities against civilians. There is no need for someone to go in the bush to express himself politically, socially. From the instruction given to us, we are going to, at the grassroots level to reinforce the fight against the circulation of ammunition in the region and uh, make sure all those uh, that are still keeping them are brought to book and prosecuted. Separatists in English-speaking Western Cameroon launched their rebellion in 2017 after what they said was years of discrimination by the country's French-speaking majority. The conflict has killed more than 3,300 people and displaced more than a half million, according to the United Nations. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News. Yawundi, Cameroon. Ramadan entertainment in Egypt used to combine TV dramas and variety shows, but in recent years, TV series became a media tool for President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi to justify his military takeover in 2013. Media experts describe the series as a sign of how much El-Sisi's government has co-opted Egyptian media, turning soap operas and other TV dramas into government mouthpieces. One of the most popular TV dramas that aired recently during Ramadan, titled The Choice, imposes the official narrative about the killing of several hundred Muslim Brotherhood members in 2013, depicting Egyptian police and security forces as heroic. Sayyid Sadiq, professor of political sociology at the American University in Cairo, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shanawi why Ramadan entertainment has become political. As you know, since... Sisi's uh, came to power, he faced very negative media coverage from Qatar, Turkey, and the Muslim Brotherhood. They demonized him. There was a need for a counter-offensive, and this serial, in its third season, this year was the answer. It was backed with actual recordings, never seen before, of Muslim Brotherhood leaders making plans away from the real aims of the January Revolution. There are different strokes for different folks. And this is the media policy. The target audience is not only Egyptians, but also the entire Arab world who may have been affected by negative Qatari and Muslim Brotherhood media coverage of Sisi. Egyptian drama is a very strong, soft power weapon and well-entrenched in Egyptian and Arab mind. There was a need for asserting and representing the official narrative in a more popular and easier-to-grasp format. And soap opera does that. This serial tries to defend the revolution of the 30s of June 2013 that led to overthrowing the Muslim Brotherhood regime that came after 2011 revolution. And that is basically the main aim of this uh, soap opera. President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's government has created three agencies to monitor media production. 
the Supreme Council for Media Regulation, the National Press Authority, and the National Media Authority. They all have been acting as de facto media regulators, according to Reporters Without Borders. How successful was such a strategy in shaping up the public opinion in Egypt? In this age of open skies, internet, and stat TV revolutions, you cannot close all channels and monopolize the directions of public opinion. Media alone are not enough, but politics too are needed. The problem is not total control of the media, but successfully presenting and crafting the right credible political message, which can be accepted by a different audience demographics. For a long time, the regime was not quick in rebutting counter messages from other external hostile Qatari and Muslim Brotherhood media, and only resorted to blocking sites and media restrictions. In a way, the regime succeeded through political and economic interest to change the strong hostile media messages coming from Qatar and Turkey. This regime's changed their policies of backing the Muslim Brotherhood media and cut down their support, thus discrediting them in a way as working for foreign government hostile to the Egyptian government. Qatar will reopen, for example, Al Jazeera office in Cairo, and Turkey ordered many Muslim Brotherhood channels to change their tone or face closure. Still, in handling news, the regime lacks a successful, influential, credible news channel, but instead has credible and influential soap opera and knows how well to use them to reach the wider audience and change public opinion in the way that they like. But is there any room for views that's different from the government points of view? Only in social media, with a lot of restriction, but otherwise, no. That was Saeed Sadiq, professor of political sociology at the American University in Cairo, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohammed Al-Shinawi. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, is providing more than $311 million in additional humanitarian assistance to 3.8 million food insecure people in the Sahel and Lake Chad Basin regions. This latest USAID contribution will include rice, grains, vegetable oil, and specialized food for the treatment of acute malnutrition, in addition to vouchers and cash for purchasing food from local markets. This funding also provides psychosocial support for conflict-affected communities, as well as emergency shelter, water, sanitation, and hygiene assistance. This additional aid comes at a critical time, as the United Nations estimates that more than 35 million people will face food shortages during the upcoming lean season in West Africa, the period between planting and harvest from May to August when food typically runs out across agricultural communities. In the Sahel, the situation is exacerbated by an existing poor harvest and the effects of conflict that continue to deplete household food stocks and resources. This has resulted in more than 20 million people needing food assistance. The Lake Chad Basin is an area in western Africa that covers Cameroon, Chad, Niger, and Nigeria. 
For the past 12 years, violence driven by Islamist terrorist groups Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa has resulted in 11.1 million people being desperately in need of humanitarian aid. Nearly 3 million people have been forced from their homes, and a lack of adequate shelter, clean water, and basic sanitation, as well as severe food insecurity, are prevalent throughout the region. The United States has contributed more than $944 million in assistance to the Lake Chad Basin and Sahel regions combined since October 2020. To underscore the Biden administration's commitment to increase collaboration and engagement with Africa, USAID recently attended the third annual General Assembly of the Sahel Alliance for the first time as a full member. This full membership status will offer new opportunities to partner with donors, the private sector, and the host government to help strengthen development and reform efforts in the Sahel. The United States will continue to look for ways to address growing humanitarian needs in West Africa. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehayus Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Bokbilia Baru, thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America. Friends, we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. This is sunny side of sports. Right here on The Voice of America. Voice of America. Sporty greetings to all our Voice of America.